What constitutes real peace? You know, for some people, they think, well, the only time I'm going to have real peace is when I die. You know, R.I.P., rest in peace. For some people, the idea of peace revolves around the idea of the end or the absence of war. You know, John Lennon's song, Give Peace a Chance. But I was reading an, an article recently, and they said in the last 5,600 years, so back to 3,600 BC, the author contended that there's been 14,531 wars during that time, large and small. And no matter how you slice it, that's a lot of war. And so constantly we see people lobbying for peace. And I guess that's a good thing. But given our collective history, given our human nature, and most importantly, given the prophetic words of Scripture, Romans chapter 3, verse 17, actually, in commenting on human nature, says, the way of peace they do not know. So I want to speak to you about another kind of peace and the author of that peace. Around 700 BC, there was a prophet who wrote some scripture that we're well acquainted with when he was looking forward to the day when the prince of peace would come. And so reading from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of course, in that, he's speaking about another kind of peace. And this peace is not the fulfillment of just give me some peace and quiet. It isn't a peace that takes years to, add, uh, to ratify as people are sitting around a table negotiating and you have to have teams of people making sure and verifying that the other side is keeping up with their part of the bargain. It isn't a peace that can be blown up or diminished in any way. It's a peace that never fails. And it's both temporal and eternal in nature. In other words, it's part of our life now but also our life in eternity. So if you have your Bible or your device, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 4 in our series, Unstuck. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, and I want to read to you verses 2 through 7. Paul, writing to the church at Philippi, says, I plead with Eodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and I'm going to say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And then listen to this beautiful promise. And the peace of God. 
That phrase, that unique way of wording it, only appears once in the New Testament right here. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. A peace, the peace of God, available to those, it says in verse four, that are in the Lord. And this peace, it just goes beyond words. It goes beyond our ability to understand and to describe. In fact, it says in verse seven, it transcends all understanding. And so Paul is saying, listen, no matter how intelligent you are or how intelligent you think you are, it goes beyond our ability to manufacture or maintain. It goes beyond our ability to fully comprehend. And that's because it's supernatural in nature. It comes from God himself. And so if we are in the Lord, if we have a relationship with God through Christ, if we then, as this passage is going to show us, if we agree with and follow his leading, he will impart to us this incredible gift, the very peace of God. And this text says it will impact three different relationships in our life. And the first one is our relationship with God. In verse, chapter, in verse 4, we see this reference to being in the Lord. And so he's really saying that Jesus is that fulfillment of that Isaiah 9, 6 verse that I read just a few moments ago, this fulfillment of this prophetic word that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And that when he was born, he came so that we can have peace with God. And so people who have peace with God have a relationship with Christ where their sins are forgiven, where they've surrendered their life to him, and he is not only the savior of their life, but the Lord of their life too. And people in that kind of relationship with God have available to them supernatural resources of strength. They are given reserves of strength directly from God that allows them to, listen to this, live above their circumstances. Now, they may not be happy, quote-unquote, happy about their circumstances. They may, in fact, be working actively to change those circumstances. And yet, at the same time, while they're in the circumstances, God is saying, I will allow you to live, and I'm going to place you above those circumstances. And the reality is we can live in Christ when we're in the Lord on a plane of existence where there's this unusual level of strength. But coupled with that, and we're going to see this in the text, not only a level of strength, but also a level of behavior that is both provided for and expected. So how does this happen? We need to remember that Paul is not talking about some, you know, sort of pie-in-the-sky theory. He's living this stuff out. He's writing this letter from our best understanding about 62 AD, shortly after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's writing it from a 
a, a dungeon space, which is just a terrible place. I've been in those, some of those places in the Middle East, the historic sites, horrible place, likely written from the city of Rome. And I want you to try to imagine the setting with me. The chains are chafing at his ankles, probably rubbing the skin raw. His nose would have been all stuffed up with the mustiness of the straw and the dampness of the conditions and the darkness. It would have been a dark place. And if you have allergies, can you imagine what it would be like living in that dungeon? The place would be would just stink from human waste, from sweat, from fear. Fear has its own smell. The food would have been horrible. Likely his friends would have had to bring extra food in just so he could survive. And all this time while he's there, hanging over his head is the threat of pending execution. Not a pleasant place to hang out. And as Justine said to you, there could have been any number of things that he could have been consumed with worry over. So when Paul says, in the Lord, there's this recognition of him, of the sovereignty of God, that even in the darkest of circumstances in which he was living at that moment, in which he currently found himself. He's saying, even in those incredibly dark circumstances, there is God. That as a believer, we may experience circumstances that quite honestly, to be upfront about it, that appear on the surface to challenge the supremacy of God. Things taking place that we may not understand, that we may never understand this side of eternity, where we express fully to God what we're feeling, what we're going through, how it's hurting us. But at the end of the day, when I still don't understand, we say, I trust you, God. And when we come to that place, God can help us, can help us, and he will in a way that is supernatural, in a way I can't understand, in a way I can't really explain to you, there's this incredible peace and the living God of all the universe makes it so. He makes it so. Then Paul says in, in verse four to us, rejoice in the Lord. In fact, I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. And then he also said this in chapter 3, verse 1. He said, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. And so he repeats this idea several times of rejoicing because of how important it is. And really what he's saying to us is, listen, to live a healthy Christian life, we need to declare over and over again the truth and then live in that truth. And so to do this sort of rejoicing lifestyle does not mean I numb my brain or pretend that the situation as difficult as it might be is not there. 
It doesn't mean that we let things get worse through negligence or neglect or by ignoring our responsibilities. It means instead to be fully aware of the situation, to be fully prepared to deal with the situation responsibly, and also to be fully convinced of the power of God to give us wisdom, to give us grace, to give us courage to deal with whatever comes along, and then to receive and to live in the very peace of God. And friends, that leads us to a deepening, maturing, responsible faith that allows us to rejoice in who God is and to rejoice again in all that God has done and to rejoice again in allowing us to live above our circumstances. Relationship with God is the first element in receiving God's kind of peace. And because of his sovereignty, we are safe and secure no matter what happens. But then there's also relationship with others. And he talks about this in verses 2 and 3. He says, I plead with Eodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So who are these two ladies? Eodia and Syntyche. These are two ladies who are actively serving in the church and in the community. And it is significant that they are mentioned by name. Notice he mentions Clement, but then he just groups a whole bunch of other people in. Typically in the scripture, to get your name mentioned like this, you're probably an influential person, and I'm guessing, therefore, that they were leaders in this church. And I say this because of the public acknowledgement of their disagreement, that they are actually named. And so there's these two ladies whose names are on display that are having a disagreement. And you need to remember that many people in the church would have been illiterate. So this little letter of Philippians would have been read out loud to the whole congregation over and over and over again. They would have studied these passages. And then when they were done with it, it would have been passed around to all the neighboring churches in Thessalonica and places like that, to the seven churches that were around them. And we still read about this and read their names in Scripture. It would be like me putting a picture of Steph and Justine on the screen beside me so that you can see it, so that everyone on the internet can see it, and say, these two women are scrapping, and they will not agree, they will not make things right with each other, and we need to deal with this. Now, of course, I'm joking about Steph and Justine, but Paul is saying this, This toxic relationship between Iodia and Syntyche is causing problems, not just between the two of them, but probably within the church as well. 
Because when people, especially leaders, are arguing like this and won't resolve their differences, won't repent when they need to of their sin, other people are then tempted to take up sides. And I'm guessing it was probably dividing the church, the congregation at Philippi. When people, when we won't make things right with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, it's not just us that suffers. It ripples out. So Paul is asking, do you want the peace of God that he offers to each believer? Then you need to ask yourself, is there a person that we know we are at odds with? A person who, when I'm walking in Park Place Mall, I see them coming and I deliberately avoid them because I'm at odds with that person. A great question to ask in prayer is, Lord Jesus, search my heart. And if there's, and just reveal to me if there's anyone that I'm avoiding. And I understand, they may not be willing to make things right with me, but I will do what I can. I will humble myself. If I've sinned, I will admit it, and I will repent. And I will try to see this relationship restored. And so he says to the, the whole church, he says, the two of them can't get together. And so I'm appealing to the whole church. These ladies need to resolve their differences. So pray for them. Come alongside them. Help them mend the fences of their relationship. Because these two ladies will never know the peace of God in their life if they're at each other's throats. And so they need to come to the place of agreeing to disagree maybe, in an agreeable manner, whatever the case may be. I wonder how many people's peace is being affected by our unwillingness to make things right. And if also we see two people, a brother and sister, or two sisters, or two brothers in Christ, and we are aware that they're at odds, and we do nothing to help the situation, how does that impact on our own personal peace? If we don't pray for them, if we don't pray for healing for them, if we don't point them in the right direction, if, for example, we have Eodia or whatever name you want to insert in there, if we have Eodia over for coffee, and Eodia starts to gossip about Sintiki or whatever name you want to put in there, and we do nothing to put an end to that, how will that affect our peace? You know, that's in Tiki. She's doing this to me and she's done that and she won't do this and she won't do that and we just sit there and drink it in and do nothing about it. How will that affect our peace? Or if we get off the sidelines and say, you know, Eodia, you are a good friend of mine and because I am your friend, I'm going to ask you to stop gossiping about Sintiki. And you know what, Eodia? I've been praying for you and Sintiki that there would be peace between the two of you. Friends, that is what a real friend and what a real follower of Christ does. If we want the peace of God that transcends all understanding, verse 7, what is our relationship like with other people? Thirdly, 
There's the relationship with ourself or ourselves. And we read about that in verses 5 and 6. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Present your requests to God. Be anxious for nothing. You know, I wonder how many of us don't have a care in the world. We all have cares, don't we? And I would suggest, in, in many ways, there's a place in the life of a believer for cares because we care about our loved ones. We care about living a holy life. We should care about that. We care about honoring God. We care about doing our very best for God. God deserves and frankly expects us to do our best on his behalf. We care about uh, other people. We care about lost people. Those things are not only permissible, but they are honorable. So I believe what Paul is commenting on here is when an issue puts us in a chronic state of anxiety. It's not a something happens and we, we're concerned about it right away. That's kind of a normal human reaction, but then we're asked to deal with it appropriately. So he's speaking about a chronic state of anxiety, when we're worrying about things we can't control, when we're worrying about things that haven't even happened, and most of the literature would suggest to us won't ever happen. I can't remember what it was. 80 or 90% of what we typically worry about never actually comes true. Things that distract us from what we should be doing. And if I, if I was just being real honest with you, this is something I wrestle with. So Paul says, Scott, whatever you do, don't try and have peace in these situations through your own abilities and strength. Scott, you know that on your own, you know this stuff. You may be able to project a facade of peace for a while. You can make it look like you've got it all together, but inwardly, it's eating away at you. Instead, Scott, go directly to the Prince of Peace and say, Lord Jesus, would you help me? And ask him, Scott, very specifically for help and couple that. So ask him very specifically for the things that you're, you're dealing with, that you're wrestling with, that you need help with and couple that, it says in verse six, with copious amounts of thanks for giving for what he has already done and for what he will do. And then, Scott, in verse 7, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. A peace that transcends our ability to comprehend it. A peace that comes only, only, from the Prince of Peace. The last two verses of our text, I want you to imagine with me a courtroom setting where the lawyer has carefully and studiously presented all the evidence and he or she is about to deliver their summation and they very carefully rehearse and record and choose their words for the summation, where for the jury they're going to reiterate all the evidence they've presented, 
and then they're gonna couple that with really deep emotion. They wanna tie with the jury all the facts in evidence, but also they wanna tie it with emotion. And this is exactly what Paul is doing in verses eight and nine. And so I wanna end by simply reading these summation verses of the text and letting those verses speak for themselves because they say it so much better than I could ever hope to. Listen to them carefully. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Let me read that promise again. And the God of peace will be with you. Amen.